Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to this New Books Network podcast. My name is Katriona Gold. I'm a PhD candidate at University College London, and today I'm very excited to be interviewing Susan J. Pearson about her new book, The Birth Certificate, An American History. Susan J. Pearson is an Associate Professor of History at Northwestern University, and her fascinating and rather stylish book was released with the University of North Carolina Press in October 2021. In the book, she traces the document's 200-year history to explain when, how, and why birth certificates came to matter so much in the United States. So without further ado, welcome to the podcast, Susan. Thanks so much for having me, Kat. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. (laughs) And we're happy to have you. All right. Um, Perhaps we can start, uh, well, I'd like to start by asking you to tell us a bit about yourself. So what's your academic trajectory been? What have you been working on till now? Um, How does it connect with the book? Is it sort of a straightforward line or or maybe this book is a bit of a divergence? I'd love to know how you came to write it and what you've been working on till now. That's a great question. And I always love to know uh, about people's academic trajectories. Uh, I'm a big reader of acknowledgments pages as well in books because I like to see the networks in which people operate. So I think those genealogies are really interesting. My uh, So I went to the University of North Carolina to get a PhD in United States history. And I wrote a dissertation and my first book on the relationship between animal and child protection organizations in the United States following the Civil War. So those organizations got going in in the 1860s, the late 1860s. And um, so I was writing a bit about uh, and that, that that resulted in my first book, which is called The Rights of the Defenseless, Protecting Animals and Children in Gilded Age America. So I was interested in issues relating to the history of childhood. I was interested in issues relating to law, to legal protections, and to the expansion of governance in the United States and the ways in which the expansion of governance in the United States requires us to think broadly about what counts as a state actor, Uh, what kinds of beings the state gets interested in protecting uh, and bringing under its mantle. So in that book, I told a story about how private organizations such as Societies for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals and Societies for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children ended up becoming these quasi-governmental agencies. They were deputized with police powers. They were given a range of abilities and powers under state and local laws to kind of extend what they would have what they called the arm of the law or the arm of the state into private relationships. And so in some ways, my interest in birth registration and birth certificates is quite different from that. And in other ways, there is a kind of through line. The through line 
I think has to do with uh, my interest in histories of childhood, my interest in the relationship between children, families, and the state, and my interest in how in this very complex, federated, and sort of decentralized political system in the United States, how state capacity, the state's willingness, interest, and ability to do things to regulate people, to act in people's lives, how that grows over, you know, from the beginning, from the early republic through the 20th century when historians tend to start talking about there being an active state in the United States with things like the progressive era, but especially the New Deal. So in both books, I've been interested in kind of following the contours of that pre-New Deal story about the history of statecraft, the history of governance, regulation, and particularly the ways it relates to the somewhat intimate aspects of people's lives. Right. That's Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I definitely see some connections there sort of thematically. Yeah. Um, well, I guess I'm wondering, you know, following on from that, was there, as, you know, as far as how you came to write about birth certificates, was there sort of an aha moment where you realized, oh, yeah, I have to write this book? You know, how, how did it sort of, how did you come to be writing this specific book? How did you come to be interested in birth certificates? Um, and I, I'm wondering if you could maybe say more in the process of, of what you see the stakes of birth certificates and birth registration in general as being, you know, how are these political um, and, and what does it mean to look critically at these? Yeah, so uh, there definitely was an aha moment. And strangely enough, the aha moment was probably, uh, it was many years before I wrote this book and many years before I even wrote my dissertation in my first book. I actually came across the topic of the history of birth registration when I was working on my MA thesis. Uh, so this was the late 90s. And I was at that time, writing an MA thesis actually on the history of child health contests, um, better baby contests, as they were known in the progressive era United States. And one of the uh, sources that I went to look at were publications by the U.S. Children's Bureau, because they had been active not in promoting better baby contests per se, but active in promoting child health uh, conferences, they called them, which were supposed to sort of co-opt people's interest in, in better baby contests and be more scientific and rational. But as I was doing that, I came across this publication from the Children's Bureau that was published in 1914, and it was called Birth Registration, an Aid in Protecting the Lives of Children. And it was the first publication that the Children's Bureau ever issued after it was founded. And I read the little pamphlet, you know, it was 10 or 15 pages. And it just really struck me. It literally was an aha moment where I thought, oh, how strange that in 1914, not everyone in the United States has a birth certificate. How strange that this was something that people had to deliberately try and make happen when I take for granted living in it was about 1998, probably, that everybody in the United States has a birth certificate. It's no big deal. It's something I never think about. And yet this pamphlet let me know that 
there was a deliberate political process behind the fact that I could take this document completely for granted. And I was very influenced as a young intellectual in college and in my early years of graduate school by Michelle Foucault, who was all the rage in the 90s. And what I had learned from Michelle Foucault, I think, was that the things that we take for granted, uh, particularly when it comes to institutions that construct identities, are exactly the things we should pay attention to. That is exactly where power is. Power is in the ability to say who people are and to make those types of classifications and identifications seem completely normal and routinized. And so, as I say, I was, it just really fascinated me. I actually went at that time and looked in the library catalog to see, has anyone written a book about this? Has anyone written articles about this? And I found a couple of articles that were published in the 1950s by demographers that talked about basically just from a numerical standpoint, what percentage of the U.S. population had their birth registered at different times over the course of the 20th century. And that was it. And so I just thought, well, this is a great untold story that I think is really fascinating. And I was writing my MA thesis. I did that. I went on to write my PhD thesis on these animal and child protection organizations. And then as I was sort of wrapping up that book, I thought, well, what am I going to do next? And I returned to my fascination. I remembered very clearly that I had been so fascinated by this project and I had always tucked it away as something that I might return to. And so once again, I went to the library catalog to see, well, you know, it's been <laughs> it's been 13 years since I had this aha moment at the library in graduate school. Has anyone done anything yet? And nobody had. And so I started to look into how how I could tell this story, you know, what's available, who are the actors, who's the cast of characters, what are the kinds of institutions involved in this? Uh, yeah, so then I just started putting together the project. Wow, that's great. Um, I have to backtrack a second and ask you to explain for our listeners, um, what is a Better Baby contest? Oh, sure. <laughs> so, um <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I, <laughs> Better Baby Contests uh, were contests, they were baby health contests. And so they were part of a broad infant welfare, uh, child welfare movement in the late 19th and early 20th century that was concerned with high rates of infant mortality in the United States. Um, so one of the things, so as a sort of publicity tool to teach parents, but particularly mothers, about what what are the normal um, standards for child development in the early years? So in the first couple of years of life, how much should your baby weigh at different times? What should you feed them? Uh, how should you um, take care of their physical needs, other, you know, their bodily needs, uh, feeding, changing, dressing, things like that? Uh, these reformers, people like uh, the the general, the um, 
General Federation of Women's Clubs, local public health departments, uh, the American Medical Association, a variety of different organizations started staging these contests at places like settlement houses in urban areas, but very often at county or state fairs in rural areas. And the idea was that you could co-opt maternal pride in their in children, right? Um, and say, everybody thinks they have the most beautiful, the most fulsome, the most handsome baby. And so say, well, okay, come and bring your baby and we will decide who who is the best baby. And we won't decide based on how cute they are or how chubby they look, right? But we're going to have this objective, scientifically derived set of criteria, right? So we're going to measure the circumference of the skull. We're going to, with the calipers, we're going to weigh the baby. We're going to take its length. We're going to ask you a series of other questions about your child rearing practices, right? Was the baby breastfed or bottle fed? Do you uh, have it sleep in a crib or does it sleep in bed with you? Do you have screens on your windows at home, right? A whole series of questions, and then they would rate the babies based on this and award prizes. There is a kind of uh, eugenic aspect to the Better Baby contests as well, right? And some of these contests were put on by local health officials who were firm advocates and proponents of eugenics. And some of them even went so far as to have something called Fitter Family Contest, where they would measure the whole family, right? and measure their physical health um, and their habits, right? To see if they were a eugenically fit family. And so there's, uh, and even when they're not uh, put on by people who are avowed eugenicists, right? Eugenics and eugenic ideas are very much present in the contest because the metaphor that underlies a lot of the contest is this metaphor of breeding. And you have a lot of publicity surrounding them, particularly when they're occurring in these agricultural settings like county and state fairs, where the reformers who are putting them on are saying, well, farmers, you know how to breed a great crop of corn or um, breed really uh, terrific livestock, but how well are you breeding your own children? So there's this, this animal husbandry metaphor, which is very much in line with with eugenics. So it's part of that whole uh, movement, that whole intellectual and reformist milieu in the early 20th century. Right. That's, yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. I had no idea about any, any of this. I mean, it makes sense, right? But I, yeah, I think that's one of the more interesting, well, one of a number of uh, interesting little sort of bits uh to be found in this book because of course you do write a little bit about uh yeah about these better baby um you know com- contests here and i i assume uh, yeah do they do they make it into your earlier book too or is this they did not make it into the earlier book actually uh but so it was fun to be able to return to them in this book because <laughs> those contests um and the child health contests that were sort of rival institution that was put on by the U.S. Children's Bureau because they didn't like the contest because they didn't they didn't want they didn't believe in competition they wanted just to you know sort of uh, rationally educate people about uh, proper motherhood without the the competitive aspect so I uh, knew that I, I returned to them in this book because those contests and the child health 
conferences were ways that birth registration was promoted. Um, they were promoted by nurses who were inspecting the babies. That was actually one of the questions that would be part of the examination of a baby at a child health conference or at a better baby contest. The nurse would ask, is the baby registered, right? So that could score you a point, right? That was considered an integral part of uh, proper motherhood, proper parenthood to see that the baby's birth was registered and uh, more broadly, an integral part of child welfare. Okay, right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, wow. Uh, yeah, let's, uh, I feel like we've covered so much ground already. And we're not even we're not even at this question of what is the birth certificate. So maybe um, I want to ask you, uh, I do want to ask you about how you went about researching this book. But um, perhaps first, uh, we could start with uh, what is a birth certificate? How did the birth certificate come to sort of be? In the US. Um, I would love if we could sort of start there and maybe get a little bit more into the empirics there. Of course, the book has, um, you know, it has these three substantive chapters. So building birth registration, living with birth registration and contesting birth registration. Um, so it'd be nice if we can get a bit of an overview of each of them. But yeah, let's start from the beginning. So what is a birth certificate? What did it look like when it came into being? How did it come into being? Please tell us. Yeah, Thanks for that question. And it's it's good to go back to basics because, again, this is something that we take for granted. And yet, when you stop to think about it, it you know, it, it has some surprising elements to it. So I guess the first thing I would say is that I think it's important to differentiate between birth registration and birth certificates. So uh, birth registration has been going on for a long time. And birth certificates are a more recent phenomenon. Birth registration is the act of recording a birth in, well, I include, I talk about birth registration as the act of of writing down a birth in a, in a civic or civil registry, right? So there are religious forms of registration, baptismal registries. There are private forms of registration, things like people writing down the birth of a child in a family Bible or in another kind of family uh, documentary space, right? Uh, sometimes children's births were written in family account books and, uh, and other places. But uh, so to differentiate what I'm talking about from those prior, those pre-existing forms of recording birth, uh, birth registration is is yeah the act of registering a birth, writing it down in a civil registry book. That um, can, but does not always. That can't. That is linked to the issuance of a birth certificate. Right, a birth certificate is a piece of paper that one can go to a registry office and obtain and take with them so that it becomes a token that certifies the act of the registration having taken place, right? And it becomes a portable document that shows that at the time of birth or shortly thereafter, some person came into a registry office and recorded the fact that a person, an individual was born uh, at a certain time on a certain day to certain people in a particular place. 
right? And then all of those elements of what gets recorded in the registry book become facts that are take up space in the boxes of a certificate, which becomes the portable evidence of that registry. Um, and so the birth certificate is, in a, is a document that serves the purposes of identification, whereas the registry can serve purposes beyond identification. The registry can serve the purpose of collecting and aggregating knowledge about the population, right? How many people were born in Evanston, Illinois, which is where I live? How many people were born in Evanston, Illinois in, in the year 2020? Well, we can find that out because there's a registration office that has a record of all of this. Um, but if I want to prove that I am Susan J. Pearson, right, then I get a piece of paper that attests to the fact of a registration um, on October 9th, 1973, when I was born. Right. Okay. So good to get at those, yeah, key distinctions. Um, I mean, I'm curious how, you know, in the U.S., context both came to be i mean was was there always a kind of birth registration going you know going on and then it's just the birth certificate that sort of comes along later what what was who was pushing for for the birth or eight or forms of birth certificate um yeah yeah, yeah be... great question and that'll get me into a little bit of telling the kind of change over time stories that are in this book um so the there is always birth registration in the United States in some form or another. Um, you know, it's a, it's a somewhat complex story. Uh, so different colonies that are set up by Great Britain um, or other nations um, end up having different registration systems before the advent of the United States as an independent nation. So in um, and, and there's important differences between those. Those registration systems have different practices and ideologies embedded in them. So in Virginia, for example, when colonists come from England and create the colony of Virginia in the 17th century, they create a set of laws to govern themselves and they adopt what is very similar to the system that prevailed in England at the time, which is a parish-based registry system um, where people are registered um, at birth in the parish where they are born, right? And those registry books are superintended and governed by uh, ecclesiastical authorities, right? Um, by contrast, the people who come and settle the Massachusetts Bay Colony uh, who are religious dissenters set up a civil registration system, which is the first civil registration system in the Western world. Um, and they create a system where the registry books are kept by town clerks rather than by ecclesiastical authorities. And this is really important because it signals an important shift from a kind of religious justification for recording people's births to a civil justification for recording people's births, right? And it gives, it creates a whole different system of um, administrative, but also kind of uh, epistemological authority for recording these facts. Now, 
Um, and then these different systems, right, sort of make it into state laws as the United States declares independence and each state has to create or adopt its colonial laws to the situation of being part of an independent republic. By and large, registration systems are pretty inadequate and threadbare in the colonial era and in the early republic, which is to say that most births are unregistered. Uh, the systems don't function particularly well. And I interpret that as a sign that people can get along in life without need, without having recourse to a birth registry, right? They don't necessarily need that particular kind of evidence about themselves in order to do what they need to do, right? Um, people live in pretty small communities. People know who each other are. They know whose child you are. Um, they know more or less how old you are. Um, and they know what they need to know about you. And in cases where aspects of identity, such as your paternity or your age or your name are contested, right? Those things that find their way into court cases that we can see. Testimonial evidence is considered the highest form of evidence under the sort of British legal system that's adopted by the United States. So if somebody comes into a court of law and swears on a Bible that they're going to tell the truth and they say that, you know, this is my neighbor, John, and I know that he was born to this family because I was living next door to them when, when John was born um, and it was around this or that year, right? That's considered really terrific evidence of those kinds of issues of parentage or age. And you don't need anything else um, in a court of law. Bringing in a document is a sort of secondary form of evidence. It's a kind of hearsay rather than that direct testimony. So it's actually considered not as uh, compelling a form of, of evidence. Um, so the issuance of, of actual certificates, right? Um, the idea that both that the act of registration would be initiated by the filling out of a form, right? Which is what the birth certificate is. It's a form um, that, that the registration itself would be initiated by the form and that the form would then be um, reproducible as an identity document for someone. That doesn't really get going until um the first kind of revamped modern registration system is put in place in the state of Massachusetts in the early 1840s, right? Um, and that effort, uh, Massachusetts kind of leads the way in reforming vital registration laws across the United States. They're the first state to try to revamp their laws uh, and they, provide a model for a lot of other states um, in how they set up their system. And their effort is led by a group of men who are really interested in kind of the science of human life, um, both the medical science of human life and the social science of human life. These are men like Lemuel Shattuck, who I talk about a lot in the book, who is a kind of polymath, reformist type uh, guy living in the in the antebellum 
United States. He's really interested in genealogy, um, in the history of New England. He's really active in setting up, you know, the New England History and Genealogical Society, but he's also a founder of the American Statistical Association. Um, so he is someone who thinks that knowledge of like statistical ag aggregated statistical knowledge of the population will yield information that allows the state of Massachusetts and any kind of governing entity to rationally govern its citizens in their interest. Right. So um, and he lives in Boston. So you have he and he's allied with other Bostonians who are interested in advancing public health, right? And and so they're seeing the kind of immiserating effects of congregating a lot of people together in large cities, right? People get sick more often. There's high rates of infant mortality. There's contagious diseases, right? And they don't have germ theory, so they don't really know why this is happening, right? Um, but they sense that there must be things that we could learn if we could sort of more effectively correlate, right? Like who's getting sick or uh, where are, where in the city of Boston are babies that are born most likely to die, right? And so they want to put in good systems of vital registration to try to discern what they assume must be underlying laws that structure, as I say, both physical and social um, science, right? Um, the, the kind of medical, the physical health of people, but also the way that um, categories of people are affected differently by how they live, right? So they're interested in how are people affected by their occupations? Um, how do people at different ages in different occupations fare? Um, as I mentioned earlier, how do people in different wards of the city, how well do their babies survive? things like that. Um, and so, you know, that that's their dream is that vital registration is going to, because it's kind of like a ticker, right? It's real-time population information as opposed to a census, which gives you a snapshot every X number of years that you take it, right? It's a static form of information. Vital registration happens every single day. Um, people are born, people die. And that is registered. And then when you correlate with that with other facts about them, which are collected as part of registration, who their parents are, you know, what nationality, um, where do they live? How old are they? What is the occupation? Um, then you start to be able to do this kind of social science work of seeing what are these correlations here? And so it's people like that in the early republic that are really behind trying to reform. Uh, vital registration, right? I mean, they recognize that birth registration has a role to play in sort of legal matters of identification, that it might be helpful, but that's not their primary goal or interest, right? Their primary set of goals and interests is really this kind of public health um, and sort of social scientific statistical worldview that they're trying to get the information to enact. Right. So it's sort of fair to say this is sort of, yeah, shift in, in concern here um, towards this a sort of biopolitical concern, right, with, with 
governing people at this population level and with using statistics and to, to do that, right? So that's a properly Foucauldian, yeah, take. Um, yeah, Definitely, absolutely. right. And the idea, and you know, they have, I think we could say a sort of biopolitical worldview and that they assume that the state, right? In this case, it's mostly state, literally like states, like the state of Massachusetts. Again, because we're talking about this, you know, time when the federal government doesn't have a lot of authority or uh, willingness to kind of act in the public health other than to do things like quarantine ships that have like yellow fever on them and things like that. Right. But, um, you know, yeah, these these folks at the state level are thinking, well, the city of Boston can do things. The state of Massachusetts can do things. uh, The city of New York can do things. um, And it ought to do things right. The state ought to attend to the health and welfare of the population and it ought to do so actively. So, um, you know, they they say things like the state has long legislated for property, but not for life, you know, and it's like, you're like, oh, Michelle Foucault could have written that, right? (laughs) Written that line, right? Um, (laughs) The the idea is we want to legislate for life. And and that includes health, well-being. Uh, It includes uh, promoting the, the bodily health of the population that that is the proper sphere of government Mm -hmm. right absolutely um yeah okay that's this is really interesting i i guess uh so we've got we've got into the how how they came to to be um or how we how we sort of got to the point of, of pushing for birth registration um, I guess what I'm curious about is is maybe next is to maybe get into some of the, the implications of of this push, right? So I know something you you discuss in the book are there sort of ra- racial um, implications and maybe forms of forms of ordering that, that that come out of that, and and obviously we've we've touched upon um, eugenics already in the interview, and so maybe maybe turning towards perhaps the the inequalities or or the ways that uh, forms registration intersected with with race and other kinds of hierarchies in American society that that would be helpful if you'd be able sure. to talk to those. Um, and, and and yeah I'm happy to answer that question it's something that I pay a lot of attention to in the book um, because one of the stakes of having birth registration and having birth certificates right is that Certain people uh, always, and this is true in, in 2021 in the United States, right, that, that people who have registration documents are advantaged in ways that people who do not have them um, are not, right? So when it comes to securing other kinds of identification, birth certificates are what um, scholars call breeder documents. Um, that is, they're the foundation for other documents that we more commonly in, in our contemporary world use as portable forms of identification, things like passports, driver's licenses, uh, other uh, or other state issued forms of identification, right? We we bring out the birth certificate in order to get those, right? And then those those mm-hmm. become a proxy for facts that are established by the birth certificate. But um, in the uh, this issue of the sort of differential impact or advantage that flows to different people through the use, instrumental use of birth certificates as identification is quite longstanding. It's not something 
that's new. And that works in a couple of different ways. Um, one is that it's always the case uh, throughout the history I'm telling from the early Republic through the middle of the 20th century, that if you are non-white, if you are an immigrant, if you live in, uh, if you are not literate, if you live in a rural area, if your birth is attended by a midwife rather than a physician, all of these factors mean you are less likely to have your birth registered. And that means that later on in life, particularly as my story moves forward in time and birth certificates become more routinely required as a form of identification, more integrated into the functioning of different kinds of institutions, um, those people who do not have them are going to have a harder time accessing basic institutions like school, employment, social security, a passport, a driver's license, all those things, right? So that follows you from the conditions of your birth, right, throughout the rest of your life. So there's a disadvantage that flows from not having registration. But in certain cases, there's also a disadvantage that flows from having registration. And that is because one of the part of the work that birth certificates do and that birth registration does throughout the history I'm telling is to fix certain identity categories. And chief among these is race. There is a box for racial classification on the standard certificate of birth that's first issued by the federal government by the U.S. Census Bureau in 1916. That's the first federally issued birth certificate. It's important to say that the federal government has no power or authority to register birth, but the United States Census Bureau, once it's created in 1903, is very interested in helping states to effectively register birth so that it can use the population information that comes with birth registration as part of its own sort of data collecting, right? Um, and so they do a great deal of work in issuing forms and in assisting states with managing birth registration. So that first federally issued standard certificate of birth that is adopted by almost all states includes uh, a box for the racial classification of the father and the racial classification of the mother. And this will, you know, yield a racial classification for the child. Now, I've been able to show in the book that once birth certificates become demanded by institutions as a form of identification, that they are used to help administer systems of segregation, systems of white supremacy in for both Native Americans and African Americans. And uh, these are the two groups that I focus on in the book. Now, there are other uh, racialized groups in the United States who are marked as uh, such on their birth certificates. But these are the two stories that I tell in the book. Uh, and for Native Americans, the story is really about, um, well, it's, I chiefly deal with the story of uh, the allotment of Native American land, um, the efforts that were made by the federal government to end the reservation system that was developed in the late 19th century and to break up 
as they would see it, break up the tribal affiliations of native peoples and replace those tribal affiliations with a kind of individuated identity, individuated citizenship in the United States. And that that is attended by forms of uh, patriarchal uh, marriage and family formation. And all of the, that hinges on the proper vital registration of Native Americans. So vital registration is really integral to the project of allotment from the beginning. Um, the folks who advocate for allotment, including reformers outside the federal government, um, are very concerned that if you start issuing deeds to land to people and you don't know you know, who is married to who and whose children belong to who, that this system of trying to kind of uh, assimilate people through private property ownership is going to fall apart. So they're very keen to have the Office of Indian Affairs, which is later the Bureau of Indian Affairs, um, issue marriage certificates, birth certificates, death certificates, um, something that the Office of Indian Affairs had already been trying to do, but had really struggled to do effectively and mostly had not done effectively. And so this is um, a kind of interesting case because this is a place Native Americans are sort of the only group that over which the federal government do, actually does have registration jurisdiction because they live on federal lands. And so this is a case I look at as the way that a really good case of how birth registration functions inside a system that is really colonial. You know, it is about the, the dispossession of Native sovereignty, and registration is integral to that because it individuates people in ways that is are meant to strip them of uh, tribal sovereignty quite explicitly. For African Americans, um, the story is one of the ways that birth documents are used to mark people as belonging to, uh, as being at the time, they would have said Negro, right? And therefore as being subject to laws governing school segregation, laws governing uh, marriage, right? Anti-miscegenation laws. Um, so there are, um, and I take the case of, of Virginia and the state registrar there who was, you know, ha held his tenure for 34 years, Walter Plecker, who's quite famous already. Um, historians have, have known about, about him and, and what he was up to in part because Virginia had this incredibly stringent um, racial classification and anti-miscegenation law, the Racial Integrity Act passed in 1924 that became the kind of archetypical um, law of racial classification and anti-miscegenation in the United States because it uh, generated the so-called one-drop rule, which is the idea that if you have any evidence of African ancestry at all, you must be classified as Black. Sucker was also quite keen to eliminate other racial categories from the landscape of Virginia that had existed prior to the 1924 Racial Integrity Act. In particular, he wanted to uh, eliminate the classification of certain Virginians as Indian because he maintained that there were no pure-blooded Indians in the state of Virginia, that all of them 
had intermarried with uh, African Americans and therefore must be classified as black. So he was keen to impose a black-white binary on this sort of mixed populations of Virginians. And he did this through racial classification on birth documents, which were uh, under his control as the state registrar during the years that uh, the Racial Integrity Act was in force um, when it was passed and uh, for many years after that. Um, so he's a quite dramatic example of of the way that racial classification functioned inside these systems, but I was able to find evidence that this was happening in other states and that racial classification on birth certificates was also used in quite quotidian ways to deny people access to employment, to um, deny them access to integrated schools uh, or to white schools in other states and so on. And um, in the book, I also tell the story of kind of how racial classification comes to be taken off of birth certificates. And I'm happy to talk about that um, in a later portion. Of, or if you want to follow up with questions about that, we can talk about that, too. But yeah, I would I would actually love to hear more about I mean, that's that's sort of the last section of the book. Right. Um, sort of how how some of this was was contested. Um, so, yeah, that that would be really great to to hear more about. I think those are really interesting stories. Sure. Yeah. So as you mentioned, the, the last section of the book, so there's, as you mentioned in the beginning, there's three sections to the book, each of which has multiple chapters in it. And the first section is called um, Building Birth Registration. And that tells the story of people like Lemuel Shattuck um, and others at the U.S. Children's Bureau, right, their efforts to really build a functioning birth registration system across all of the states of the United States. And so, um I look at uh, just kind of how that system was built, both in terms of the infrastructure, the laws, the different kinds of parties who were involved, um, and the publicity that went along with that, right? And the middle section of the book, Living with Birth Registration, I look at, okay, once people have become pretty invested in birth certificates are a great way to tell who people are, let's use them for that. Uh, what are the kinds of systems that people use them for? And so I look at um, the way that they're used in public health campaigns against infant mortality, the way they're used to enforce age-based uh, restrictions, particularly around things like child labor and the World War I draft, and um, also then the story of Walter Plecker and others, the way they're used to enforce systems of racial segregation for African-Americans and Native Americans. So the final section of the book is called Contesting Birth Registration. And there I consider how the more that birth certificates are used, become this quotidian identity document, the more subject they become to contestation, right? Or their categories become subject to contestation. And I have a few different examples of that um, and examples of how pressure from different constituencies ends up changing the categories on birth certificates. So one of those examples has to do with um, what is technically called birth status, but is marks whether a, baby's, a, ba a baby was illegitimate or legitimate, right? Born inside or outside of wedlock. So this was routinely recorded, right? Um, on birth certificates and in birth registries, you know, 
from the beginning because issues of paternity were issues of property, were issues of who has an obligation to a particular child, right? And there were quite stringent laws um, governing the rights um, and mostly the lack of rights of children born out of wedlock. So um, in the early 20th century, starting in say the 1920s, um, the very same people like in the US Children's Bureau and in um, allied kind of non-governmental organizations interested in child health and child welfare, the same people who have been pushing really hard for birth registration, right? Like we've got to get every ba baby registered um, because these documents protect children and they also allow us to see what our actual rates of infant mortality are, right? Because you can't know what infant mortality rates are unless you know exactly who's being born and who's dying at what age, right? That, that's just mathematically necessary to calculate the rate. So um, they're very keen to get everybody registered. They're very keen particularly to get children born out of wedlock registered because they know that these babies are particularly vulnerable. Um, the evidence they have suggests that they die at much higher rates than children born in wedlock, right? And this has to do not only with poverty, but with the social shame attached to out-of-wedlock births. Um, mothers uh, try to hide the babies or they give them, oh, stick them in sort of unlicensed homes who want to get a job, right, have to show their birth certificate and it will say on it that they're born out of wedlock, right? And so the, um, the child welfare reformers are starting to think that this is bad, right? Because it stigmatizes children um, unfairly. And so they want to, there, a debate opens up about whether or not uh, to remove birth status from birth certificates. And um, what ends up happening is that you have people who say, no, we need to continue to record who is legitimate and who is illegitimate, right? Because we need that population information. Um, and also we need to be able to reach those children in particular, right? And then you have people on the other side who say, no, we need to protect, protection means hiding this fact, right? Um, and so the kind of compromise that's brokered between these different sides is to essentially divide the birth certificate into public and private parts. And so they create literally like a dotted line on the birth certificate. And above the dotted line, those everything recorded in those boxes will be the public face of the birth certificate. So that's going to include your date of birth, your name, your place of birth, all that relevant kind of basic identity information. And then below the dotted line, they create a section which is says, you know, this is for health and medical use only. And there you record whether the birth is legitimate or illegitimate. And then you cut off <laughs> that information along the dotted line uh, and it gets separated from information about that particular individual whose birth is recorded above the dotted line. So what you have is a kind of bifurcation of these different functions that the birth certificate and birth registration serve. One is that aggregate population knowledge, which is gonna be preserved in the ability to cut the birth certificate in half and still collect this aggregate information about how many children out of wedlock were born in New York City last year, right? We're still going to be able to know that. 
but we're not going to say that this particular child was born, any particular child was born out of wedlock. So they can still present a birth certificate for all of the reasons that people present birth certificates and no one will ever know, right? Um, and I thought that was particularly an interesting case because as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, right, there are different kinds of functions that birth registration and birth certificates can serve, right? You have on the one hand, this uh, kind of desire that's animating people like Lemuel Shattuck and these reformers in the early Republic for like, we want to collect data. We want aggregate population information. We want to, um, you know, kind of slice and dice categories of information, figure out correlations, discover social and medical laws that allow us to govern people more rationally and effectively to promote the health of the social body, right? This kind of bio, biopolitical urge, right? On the other hand, um, you have this function of birth certificates, which is that they're a form of legal identification about a particular individual, right? And so, you know, you carry that birth certificate into an office, you show it to someone, they say, okay, you are this person, you can have this social good, right? You can have school, you can have labor, you can have a driver's license, you can have a passport, you can get married, whatever, whatever it is. Um, and so um, I think here in this conversation about illegitimacy, you start to see these different functions like tug at one another. They're no longer integrated you know, that you have to you have to redesign the document to continue to serve both functions adequately. Right. And I continue that story about the tensions between the different roles that birth certificates play into the story about race and racial classification, because it's really quite similar um, in that. And it happens a little bit later, starting in the 50s. Right. Um, civil rights organizations and individual medical providers, African-American doctors start to say, wait a second, you know, why, why are we recording race on birth certificates, right? What, why are we doing that other than to discriminate against people, right? Because, um, and they're correct, right? I mean, we've seen this from the case of Walter Plecker, but also, um, during World War II, um, there was a requirement that anyone who wanted to work in a war industry, uh, so any industry that had a, a contract with the federal government, had to provide a birth certificate to prove their citizenship in order to work. And surprise, surprise, it turned out that employers would use the birth certificate requirement to screen out Black applicants. And this became something that... Um, the March on Washington movement um, led by uh, A. Philip Randolph took up and so that the Federal Employment Protection Commission that was created by FDR and then kind of replicated in the states had rules about like, when can you ask an, a prospective applicant to show their birth certificate? And they made rules that said you can only ask after you've offered them employment, right? So we know that it was integrated into the kind of routine discrimination that African-Americans faced in employment. So civil rights organizations are starting to notice this. Black doctors um, start to perform acts of conscientious objection, essentially, in uh, the, and these get covered in the Black press, where they refuse to fill out the racial categories on the birth certificates and are threatened with lawsuits by the states they work in. So that starts to get kind of national attention and 
the um, National Association of Medicine, which is the kind of premier organization for black physicians who had been excluded from the American Medical Association, as well as um, organizations like the Urban League and the NAACP start to consider taking a stance on this issue, right? And all of them come up with the idea that we ought to stop recording race on birth certificates because it's only serving to um, function. It only serves as a, as a way to allow people to easily discriminate, right? That's the only uh, function it serves. At the same time, you do have African-American politicians and intellectuals who, as in the case over illegitimacy, say, well, but, you know, we, 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 we do want to collect information about the, you know, the sort of health, um, health related and, and sort of social scientific data about African-Americans, because that actually allows us to see racism um, at work, to see the effects of racial discrimination, structural inequality, right? Um, we have to be able to sort people by race in order to study those things and demonstrate them. So Again, it's this sort of tension between like we want this population level information, which birth registration can give us, but we don't want that information to show up on the individual birth certificate. And so the kind of compromise solution, again, that's brokered is the same one that that happens with illegitimacy, which is that race gets dropped below the dotted line so that after 19 in 1968, the first federal standard certificate of birth is issued with with race below the dotted line. And then, you know, states can choose whether or not to adopt that form, right? And some adopt it right away. Some, it takes a decade for them to adopt that, right? Um, but, but eventually all of them do so that, you know, a baby born today will not have uh, its race identified on the face of its birth certificate. However, someone at the hospital where they're born is going to tick some boxes below the dotted line. And um, that aggregate information will become part of data sets that different kinds of researchers use. Okay, great. Um, yeah, perhaps we could move from there and from those stories of contestation into talking about your research process um walk me through how you came and, and where where you went to to investigate uh, these questions right it's quite a wide-ranging book and i think it's really interesting to talk about you know how people do the research they do if if you wouldn't mind sharing some of that with our listeners that'd be great sure thank you i'm happy to talk about that i love talking about research uh and i think it's uh, always pleasurable to hear uh, from other historians about about how they went about doing their work so the research for this book was um very sort of multifaceted in that i because the united states unlike other western sort of quote unquote, developed nations does not have a central central registry office, right? It has no national system of vital registration. That means that the, the records uh, are quite scattered. There's not one place to go, right? Like I know you're in England, there's a general registry office. If you wanted to tell the history of vital registration in England, you would probably spend most of your time looking at the papers of the vital of the general registry office. So in the U.S., the, the story is a little bit 
more complicated. And so it required me to learn and think about what different kinds of institutions would have been interested and people and organizations, right, would have been interested in birth registration and then to see what they had in their files. So as I mentioned at the top of the interview, I first learned about this history by encountering a pamphlet uh, issued by the U.S. Children's Bureau. So I knew that they were interested in birth registration. I knew that they had had a campaign to try to promote birth registration. So I could guess that there would be information in their files. And there was, you know, nicely, you know, categorized by them and archived according to their classification scheme. They had a whole set of files on birth registration. Um, So that was one obvious place to go. Um, What I could then see from working in those files is what other kinds of entities they were corresponding with, um, what organizations they were working with, and start to kind of build out lists of other potential places to look. So I could see that they corresponded with the United States Census Bureau a lot. So I looked at records there um, from their vital statistics division. I also I looked in the records of private organizations that were interested in birth registration for one reason or another. So entities like the National Child Labor Committee, for example, they didn't really promote children's health, but they were very interested in birth registration as an effective way to regulate um, underage employment, right? So they promoted birth registration And so I looked in their papers. I looked in the personal papers of many people who were either um, as activists or intellectuals interested in vital registration. So people like Lemuel Shattuck, who has some personal papers, but also statisticians uh, working in the early 20th century. Um, A guy named Lewis Dublin, for example, was the chief statistician at the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. And he was very actively involved in national campaigns to promote birth registration. Um, So I was able to use his papers to get information. I also could look at states. Now, states in the U.S. tend to have very spotty record keeping. um, And by spotty, I mean that it varies widely from state to state how well different state agencies' papers have been archived and how accessible they are. So fortunately, I was able to find a few states that had pretty good records of their um, vital statistics divisions during the periods that I was interested in. So I was able to do some research in state-level archives, which is extremely illuminating in places like Virginia and Minnesota and Indiana. And that that helped a great deal as well to give me a really, really sort of ground level view of what registrars were doing, what, uh, you know, in local communities, because they would write into the state vital statistics bureaus and complain about things. And that helped me see what registration looked like on the ground, what challenges there were, what kind of resistance there was. And then, uh, you know, going back to the federal level, again, I just tried to brainstorm every kind of agency that I could think of that would be interested in some of the 
categories that and and uses to which birth certificates were put. So, you know, I looked at the Social Security Board's papers, the Selective Service for the draft, um, the and then the Bureau of Indian Affairs for Native Americans. And that was really uh, you know, sometimes it was hard to find the information in those files because unlike the Children's Bureau, they didn't necessarily have a set of, a record group called birth registration. So you had to think a little bit creatively about where it might show up and try to order the right boxes um, to see if there was anything there. And so once you could kind of get a, a foothold, though, and figure out what to ask for, what to look at, where to look, then you could you know, then I was able to get some some more information. Um, so that was that was really helpful as well. But um, so that's kind of the archival side of it. And then there was a, a great deal of digitized published information that was extremely helpful as well. So all the annual reports from state boards of health have sections on vital registration in them. Um, there's a lot of newspaper and magazine articles going back to the 19th century that could allow me to see, again, sort of what the conversation was like um, locally, but also among kind of uh, nationally circulating periodicals and among intellectuals who are interested in um, medicine, science, social science, things like that. So I was triangulated all those different kinds of information together in the book to construct the narrative, but also to kind of figure out what the main issues were. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah, very sort of wide, well, w- wide ranging and a bit of a journey across the archives. It sounds like a different sort of scales. Um, yeah, yeah definitely. which is, yeah, definitely pays off in the book, uh, for sure. Um, yeah. Okay, uh, I'd love to know, um, as we wrap up, I'd love to know what you're working on now um, or kind of how, yeah, is this project, is there, is there more related to this project or are you sort of moving on to something else if you're, if you're able to say? Um, what's, what's next for you? Yeah, um, so I, at present, am sort of lingering in some of the issues raised by this project. One of the things that really struck me when I was working on it was uh, how little comparatively was written about histories of documentation in the United States compared to the work that's been done by historians of Europe and uh, people interested in different kinds of colonial administration, again, mostly looking at European colonialism uh, in uh, abroad. And so I'm hoping to be able to kind of convene a conference and maybe hopefully get a, a published volume out of that on the history of documentary identity in the United States. So that's something that I'm working on trying to convince my university to help me pay for and working with a collaborator uh, <laughs> uh, uh, historian named Dale Kratz to try to put something along those lines together. And um, so that's what I'm focused on at the moment. I've also just become the director of graduate studies in my department. So that's keeping me really busy and uh, germinating ideas about a couple of different types of projects for a third book that I'm not yet ready to share because I have no idea yet which 
direction I'm going to go. Um, so I'll leave it at that. I'll be cagey about that. But, you know, as I say, it's, I've, I'm really still exploring a couple of different ideas and, and really unsure at this point which direction I'm going to go in. All right, as is your right. Um, that's yeah, that's it's a good that's a good place for us to end, I think. And I mean, I'm personally very excited to to yeah hear about this uh, potential conference as a as a scholar of the passport myself. Um, so I hope that comes together. Um, with that, I think we'll close here. Uh, this has been Catriona Gold speaking with Susan J. Pearson, who is the author of the fascinating new book, The Birth Certificate and American History, released in October 2021 with the University of North Carolina Press. If you'd like to pick up a copy, please consider ordering directly from UNC Press or supporting your local bookstore. Friends don't let friends buy from Amazon. Thank you all for tuning into the New Books Network. And thanks again for joining me, Susan. Thank you very much, Kat. It's been a pleasure.